Happy New Year, everybody. Duncan Green here with the latest update of uh, posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Oh, it's January. I'm in doing dry January, so no alcohol all month, or at least until my wife's birthday on the 24th. Uh, and we're trying to lose weight. And, you know, what is the point of living, really? Um, however, um, I must say, I do feel better for it. And... Um, once you get through those first few days, I find things look up and we're kind of there now. It also feels like Christmas was a long way away, a long time ago. I've stopped saying Happy New Year to anyone else apart from you guys. Um, we're now solidly into getting ready for the term time when my students arrive and start the activism course I teach at the LSE and lots of other things going on as well. Anyway, the blog got up quickly partly because i wrote some posts just before christmas so i could um, get straight on it this week so let me talk you through this week so every year at the start of the year um, i allow myself a bit of introspection which is i trawl through the numbers on google analytics on the previous year's um, activity on the blog uh, it wasn't a brilliant year partly because we had a lot of tech problems i've been running on a shoestring and it caught up with me. Can shoestrings catch up with you? I'm not sure. Um, uh, we had a lot of tech hassle. Um, the blog went down mid-year. It, 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 some of the older posts are mangled. And luckily I have a, I'm absolutely rubbish at this kind of thing, but there is a great person at Oxfam called James, James Haywood, who is uh, you know, uh, working away to try and restore the blog to its former glory. So hopefully we won't lose any content because it's a lot of content. It's uh, I started it in 2008, and um, there's at least 3 million words up there. Some of them must be useful. Um, so I don't want to lose that as an archive, if anything, yeah, if nothing else. Um, but it has been infected by viruses, random Viagra adverts, um, crashes. So we're moving to a new platform, which hopefully will uh, stop all such unwanted guests from uh, coming in um, and, and messing up the blog. I also went down to four posts a week last year. I'd been doing five a week um, uh, previously, four posts plus this roundup, um, because I was on furlough. I wasn't allowed to work on Fridays um, so that Oxfam could reclaim my Friday um, from uh, the, the government. And also we didn't have any massive spike like we did in 2020 when we had a ridiculous surge in numbers thanks to Bobby Wine in Uganda. We organised a Coronavision Song Contest and took the public service announcements from various people, including Bobby Wine, and stuck them up and asked people to vote. And somehow Bobby Wine's team got the impression that the winner was going to be the WHO official anthem of uh, the pandemic. I'm not sure we have official anthems for, the, for pandemics. And that just meant an extraordinary number of votes from Uganda and from Wine's followers all over the world, which was great for traffic. But now we've gone back to normal levels. And given all those hassles and problems, I'm quite happy that we over 300,000 people came to read the blog once or more over the over the year. Pretty much what it was before the Bobby Wine phenomenon. Um, so then I went on to look at sort of uh, where posts come from. And they're pretty much from the same, the, the biggest single country is the US, followed by the UK. But then it gets more interesting with India, France, Germany, South Africa. So pretty much as it was, except that Uganda dropped down the list. Uh, understandably and then I get, went through the individual posts um, and one of the things about running a blog for so many years is you get certain posts which somehow get onto reading lists and therefore become perennial high scorers so the 
the, the top three this year were old posts. The first of the new ones was from Maria Faciolince, who wrote, who, who did this fantastic departing contribution to the Power Shifts project on the blog, um, working with um, a Colombian collage artist, Hansel Obando, um, to produce a really nice, uh, uh, a couple of really nice pieces um, on uh, decolonization. Um, development, our visual story of shifting power and creating new horizons, paths to shift power and imagination in development. So I thought that was they were really good, and that was they came fourth because there are old posts on violence and climate change and jobs, which just keep going. Um, but I won't talk you through those. I talk you through those every year. Um, other posts from this from twenty twenty one. How to decolonize international development, some practical suggestions. Um, Graham Tusky, Graham Teskey rather wrote a very nice kind of man bites dog piece in praise of log frames. We all spend the whole time slagging log frames off. These are the logical frameworks that aid agencies are uh, used to uh, describe and plan their projects. Um, and he said, actually, you may all slag them off, but there's a lot of good things about them. And that got in, uh, got into the top 10. And then the final entry was uh, a, a sort of cri de coeur from my colleague Thomas uh, Damor Rodriguez in Mexico. Right now, it feels like anything can derail everything. So are theories of change still useful? Um, and that got a lot of uh, uh, fellow sufferers um, clicking, I think. So interesting in terms of the content, you know, the new entries for 2021 were either critiques of decolonization or very internal inside baseball aid posts. I would like to have a bit more on you know, readers coming to sit, read about inequality, climate change, politics, peace, life outside the aid bubble. And I guess that must, that's, that's a challenge to me to make sure that those posts are interesting enough. And that's what I want to do this year. Um, as always, very keen for feedback. I've got some nice comments on the blog uh, on this particular post, but you know, always keen to uh, improve and give people what they're looking for. And one piece of feedback was, why do you do these old posts? Can you just tell us which top 10 came from this year? And so I'll do that this year. I'll yeah, When I do the same post in January 2023, my God, can we even think about it? I'll make sure I just cover the 2022 top 10. So after I'd got that out of the way, I went on to links I liked. Um, I'm afraid, yeah, there are some jokey things there, but the things that stand out to me now, looking back, bad news. Um, the government of India has refused the renewal of Oxfam India's Foreign Contribution Regulation Act uh, and for about 180 other NGOs, which uh, sounds very technical, but what it means is they can't accept foreign money for humanitarian emergencies. It's going to massively reduce their ability to do their work. And then even worse, from Save the Children, um, two, two SAVE staff killed in Myanmar after an attack by the military on Christmas Eve. So some pretty horrible stuff there. Well, weirdly, uh, though, there have been lots of really positive things from the death of Desmond Tutu on Christmas Eve, I think it was. Um, and there was one particular piece which really resonated with me. Uh, it's, a, it's a paragraph from, a, um, from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. I have a theory which I started elaborating after I had met Archbishop Desmond Tutu a few times, that there are two kinds of egotists in this world. There are egotists that are so in love with themselves that they have no room for anybody else. And there are egotists that are so in love with themselves that they make it possible for everybody else to be in love with themselves. 
They are at home in their skins. It doesn't mean that they are arrogant or self-obsessed or think they are faultless. They have learned to sense some of the joy that God takes in them. And in that sense, Desmond Tutu manifestly loves being Desmond Tutu. There's no doubt about that. But the effect of that is not to make me feel frozen or shrunk. It makes me feel that just possibly, by God's infinite grace, I could one day love being Rowan Williams in the way that Desmond loves being Desmond Tutu. I thought that was great because he does come across as, you know, he is in love with himself and you don't feel bad about that. And so that really put a finger on that. I thought that was great. Next post in the week was a, a, a big double issue of the Gender and Development Journal. And this one was on feminist protests and politics in a world in crisis. Now, confession, full disclosure, I only read the overview and introduction, which is normally all I read, if that, uh, from academic journals, because they're usually written in a fairly dry way. Um, but this uh, overview by Sahela Naznin and Iwano, uh, Awino, sorry, Awino Okech was really good. Um, so we're looking at feminist protests and politics during COVID, especially. It's open access, of course, or I wouldn't be talking about it. And here are some of the the um, the, the, the the issues that that came across, and they're my subheads. But so first of all, feminism has moved more into a protest mode and built broader alliances. The quote from them: "Protests have become the leading route through which feminist movements have organised against austerity, corruption, and authoritarian regimes against Europe, the United States of America, Latin America, Africa, and Asia." From the movement for Black Lives. Me Too and climate change, change justice activism, we are also witnessing an exponential growth in transnational and intergenerational organising. Struggles for freedom and justice are being linked. Second big sort of uh, conclusion they drew, draw from this massive um, double issue, the bad guys have noticed and started stealing feminism's clothes. Using the idea of symbolic glue in this issue, Daria Colella turns the spotlight on Italy and examines how nationalist forces co-opt feminist agendas. She unpacks femo-nationalism in, in Italy by examining how right-wing political parties systematically frame campaign materials and deploy media strategies to paint black and people of colour, especially those from Muslim background, as perpetrators of violence against women and as belonging to an inferior culture that devalues women's rights, thus posing a danger both to white Italian women and the immigrant women who belong to this culture. Very interesting point there. Third, intergenerational tensions within feminism. Invariably, what also emerges in several of the articles are the tensions that exist along generational lines and the differences in modes of organising deployed by younger and older activists. In her article, Manjima Bhattacharya argues that much of the tension within the Indian feminist movement relates to the modes of engagement used by newer generations of online activists rather than political differences. The younger activists use fluid forms of on online organising, including tactics such as cancel culture, open naming and shaming, that are distinctively different from the older, more institutionalised forms of feminist organising. The younger activists can act without having to raise funds. She argues that this fluid form of organising gives the younger activists a large virtual presence and makes them less reliant on the organisations built by the older generation. But the activism itself remains more ephemeral and vulnerable. Really interesting, that, uh, that, that, that definitely uh, struck home. Next point, women's leadership. As the number of women leaders increase, which they have, the debates over whether women have a distinctive style of leadership and policy preference 
have intensified in public discourse. Are women purposefully elected to represent women's interests? Is this the fundamental reason for increasing women's representation in politics? Is it useful to assume that all women in Parliament are interested in pursuing a radical transformative agenda? Two words for that. Margaret Thatcher. My words, not the articles. How do we make sense of the co-option and subversion of affirmative action policies by political parties and political elites to reward proxies? The answer remains inconclusive, yet studies show women representatives do exercise voice to raise issues with respect to social welfare, violence against women and livelihoods issues. And then another really interesting conclusion on how change happens. Using four case studies of national law reform in the Philippines and Indonesia, Ramon Vigirasa shows that how and when women executives, that's you know, women in political power, promote gender equality reforms is mediated by various factors. The female vote, the support female presidents receive from high-level female officials and female members of parliament in navigating governmental politics in spaces that are closed off to the activists, and the political costs of adopting change all uh, adopting change all influence their decisions. The relationship between female presidents and success, successful gender equality policy reform is not linear. However, women's movements do benefit from having a woman leader in the executive who is interested in gender equality reforms, as these connections open formal political spaces that were previously unreachable. So I think, you know, I may have to go back and read the double issue. I certainly think if you're interested in these kinds of issues, it looks very rich just based on that. Final post of the week was a book review. Um, and this is a new book by Simon Dietrich, uh, who's trying to understand the history of donor governments uh, and, and, and how their history changes the way we think about aid. And I like this because basically because it echoed my own experience, which is always good when you read a book. Um, in this case, when I was doing advocacy work on trade, I was always struck that you know, the INGOs, the international NGOs from Anglo-Saxon countries, were a bit like their governments. And I always kind of, kind of compared it to, you know, owners resembling their dogs, but maybe that's unkind. But, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxons tend to tend to be liberals. They tend to say the problem is that, um, you know, poor countries don't have access to European markets, for example, or that European subsidies are distorting prices. Whereas the French and the Germans tend to be more statists, much like their government, and tend to want to do more things about food sovereignty, about yeah, putting uh, you know, tariff barriers in place to protect certain things. And it turns out, and that always felt even more the case with the aid ministries, not surprisingly, because they're, they're part of their governments. Well, what Simone Dietrich has done, and she's an academic at the University of, of Geneva, has done a massive number crunch on this. Not just number crunch, but she's covered 23 of the big OECD donors. Um, and she find, uh, and she's done both quantitative and qualitative kind of interview-based stuff, and finds that what she calls neoliberal governments, aid programs, tend to bypass the state, while those of more status governments are more likely to be channeled through developing country governments. So if you come from a neoliberal government, you're suspicious of the state and you do money through NGOs or through the private sector, um, whereas if you come from a statist government, you think, fine, we're just going to fund the state. So what this says to me is, you know, we hear a lot of talk about evidence-based policymaking. Um, take it with a pinch of salt. We also need to think about history-based policymaking, that donors 
set their policies, not just on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of their own institutional histories. And this is a kind of solid piece of evidence that that is the case and that we can we should be able to say that when we're in conversation about the way aid works. And what's more, these, these institutional biases within donors have a very long shelf life. They don't fluctuate much. She thinks that the UK and US uh, aid programs are basically still channeling the high point of neoliberalism under Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, and they're pretty proof to public opinion, you know, that she says Germans get just as annoyed as Americans when they hear about state corruption diverting their aid dollars. But the German aid program still does a lot of a lot less bypassing of states than the US one. So this in a way is interesting. It, it slightly confirms what probably anyone in the aid business would thought anyway, but it's always useful to have a bit of solid research behind you to say my hunch is correct. Um, and there's always a bit of wiggle room, you know, it's not, you know, it's not determinist. Um, you know, aid, aid donors can have periods when they depart from those uh, instincts, uh, those historical based instincts, but they'll tend to revert. And so I would say the yeah one lesson of this is if you have a particular thing you're trying to push, a new idea or a new program, work out whose biases are aligned uh, and go there first. So if you if you're working on, um, you know, uh, something which involves trade liberalisation, go to the Anglo-Saxons. If you're working on something called uh, something which involves tariffs, don't. Um, and looking back on my work on trade, I probably did the exact opposite. And my bad. I should have, you know, shame I hadn't read this this article first, this book first. Um, second point is that coordination between donors within the same ideological camp is always a lot easier than anything that attempts to cross the divide. And that's where you get some of these so-called like-minded groups. And that's probably the way to go. Um, she actually thinks that donors may all be converging on the neoliberal, more state-sceptic version of events. I'm not sure that's true. There's a massive upsurge in the role of the state because of COVID, because of you know um, a lot of uh, work around industrial policy by people like Harjun Chang. So I'm not sure where she gets that view from. I'd be interested in people's views on that. Um, And this all raises an obvious question, you know, what to do when both the state and non-state actors struggle to turn aid dollars into sustained progress? So if the state isn't working and bypassing the state isn't working, what do you do? And that's actually where a lot of aid has been heading in recent years through its focus on fragile states, which often have pretty fragile private sectors and civil societies as well. So does this, does this add further fuel to the case for focusing on global public goods? Yeah, so NGOs and aid donors accept their limitations in terms of bringing about change where nothing works and, yeah, and wait for something to start working and back it. And in the meantime, look at try and sort things out like climate change, tax evasion. You know, um, there's a bunch of things, vaccine, access to vaccines. You know, we're not short of issues in terms of global justice. Um, so maybe put the money into that because we're more likely to get results. Another approach pioneered by, uh, uh, well, researched by people up at Manchester University is this whole question of pockets of effectiveness that even where it looks like everything is a mess, you will find bits of the state and bits of uh, civil society which function. So in the DRC, in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Catholic Church is probably the most effective uh, national institution. Elsewhere, you'll find a particular ministry is working well. So back those maybe. Um, 
there are quite a lot quite a lot missing from the book i thought i thought it could have gone further in terms of the so what's and actually i emailed the author simone dietrich and she said yeah yeah i've been talking about that in the in the uh, in my presentations and i hope she comes on the blog and adds to the review in the comments and, and gives some some more implications from from her work nothing on new donors especially china are they showing the same pattern um, because a lot of them are very state-centric um, so that's presumably creating a boom for state-centric aid um, and that may be compensating so you might get traditional donors if she's right traditional do donors migrating towards a neoliberal view but all the new donors are piling in on the state side so that would be interesting bifurcation anyway lots more to talk about on this um, i'm going to stop now because uh, i want to go for a run because apart from um, uh, not drinking and eating less I'm trying to exercise every day. I'm so virtuous. I tell you, I'm completely um, uh, horrendous company at the moment because I'm so smug and full of virtue. And I'm going to go off and acquire some more now. Have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Bye.